The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So with that, let's segue into the sermon of the day, which I titled The Persecuted Church. You can look to your bulletin if you want to look at the outline there. It says Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 24. We're continuing in the book of Acts. By the way, those of you that are visiting today, just so you know, we're going through the book of Acts uh, section at a time. We started in chapter 1. We're going to go, Lord willing, all the way to chapter 28. We've been learning many wonderful lessons about how God started his church, provided for his church, the people that he used. This is our history. As Christians, there are many lessons for us to be blessed by and implement in our own personal lives and also our lives as a church. We reach a transitional point now in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 1. This whole chapter is transitional in the book of Acts, but also in the history of Christianity. Because up to this point, just to give you a little historical background on where we're at in Acts, chapter 8, the church maybe is just a couple of months old is all. And there's a lot that has actually happened. So Jesus had his three-year public ministry. He died on the cross, rose again from the dead, uh, prepared his disciples for his departure. He ascended and left and went into heaven. And then Pentecost happened where the Spirit of God was poured out and the church was born. And starting with 120 people, they faithfully evangelized and preached the gospel of Christ and God was honoring the gospel and people were being saved. And it quickly went from 120 people to 3,000 people to 5,000 plus people to 10,000 people to maybe over 20,000 people in this early church. And it's not even two months old. And it's all happening in the heart of Jerusalem. So these are all mostly Jewish, if not all, Jewish people becoming Christians. And the church is exploding. And the Christians don't have a building or a place to meet. So they're meeting in houses in the street, maybe in the upper room for whoever they can accommodate there. But mostly as a group, corporately, in portions of the temple and the temple grounds. So it's, it's public. People can see it. And so there was a courtyard called Solomon's Portico where there's, what are those thousands of Christians meeting for? What are they doing over there? They're having teaching. They're having fellowship. They're identifying as a their own homogeneous group in a kind of a quasi-Jewish religion. What is going on? So the Jewish leadership is watching that because it's visible. It's actually in their face. And the leadership of Jerusalem, the Jews who don't believe in Christ, are getting angry. They are getting jealous. And they want to shut this Christianity thing down. So if you want to shut a movement down, you go after the head. You cut off the head. So they tried that. Well, let's just arrest the spokesperson, Peter, and intimidate him and then tell him to shut his mouth and maybe that'll do it. Well, that didn't work. Well, we'll arrest him again. Him and John. Give him a stern warning and give him a gag order. Maybe that'll work. Well, that didn't work. Okay, well then let's arrest the entire leadership. Let's arrest all 12 apostles. We'll tell them to shut up and then we will beat them. And then let them go. And maybe that'll work and shut them down. Well, it didn't. They preached all the more. God blessed all the more. The church grew all the more. The church was so big they had to recruit other men to be leaders. And so one of those men was Stephen, faithful. He was probably not a native or indigenous to Jerusalem. He was an Alexandrian Jew. He spoke Greek. Probably didn't grow up in Jerusalem, but now he was a part of the Jerusalem church because he was a Jew. Got saved, became a Christian. Credible man of God, credible integrity. 
He's recognized as a leader. He's kind of the first prototype or quasi-deacon. Not only that, he's gifted in many other areas, in preaching, in teaching, the ability to even do miracles, which was limited to those who had the gift. He was bold. He was courageous. He was fearless because he wasn't a native of Jerusalem. He did not go to the native synagogues in Jerusalem where they spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. He frequented and went around now as a new Christian to the Greek speaking synagogues. And there were many dozens of dozens of synagogues in Jerusalem. There wasn't just one. And there were Greek speaking synagogues for those who were traveling from afar during feast days where they would come and go to the synagogue. And they were all Greek speaking Hellenized Jews from other countries. And Stephen was probably from another country and stayed there since he got saved. And he's going in at least four different Greek speaking synagogues in Jerusalem preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That we are sinners and you must repent of your sin. And Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's preaching that in these Jewish synagogues where they are Greek speaking. And those synagogues, those four Greek synagogues are kind of broken up by the area from where the pilgrims came from. And one of them is a synagogue of men from Cilicia in Jerusalem. So you had these pilgrims that came from up north where modern day Turkey is. In the area of Cilicia, which is on the border of Asia Minor, just almost on the border of the Mediterranean Sea, and these pilgrims came down so frequently to worship in Jerusalem, they had their own synagogue where they, they were practicing Jews, but they spoke in Greek. And it was the Cilician synagogue in Jerusalem. And it says that Stephen went, was arguing or preaching in the synagogue of Cilicia, and the Jewish unbelievers in the Cilician synagogue were resisting Stephen's message. They weren't just resisting. They were offended that he was saying that Jesus the Nazarene was the Messiah. They weren't just offended. They got angry, furious, irate. And one of the members, frequenters, no doubt, of the synagogue of Cilicia that was Greek-speaking in Jerusalem was a young man, a young man, that is key in Acts chapter 7, where Luke calls him a young man, a young Jew, a young disciple of Gamaliel, the most esteemed Jew of the day. His name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was the key city in Cilicia in Asia Minor. And in that synagogue is probably where Saul attended frequently. He was a rising star. He was a young man. He is at the nexus of the ministry of Jesus. So Saul more than likely missed the ministry of Jesus, but now had arrived as a young leader, no longer an intern, but maybe the right-hand man of Gamaliel now. He is passionate. He is the most zealous of all the Pharisees now. He is the future. He is the future. No doubt he has some authority, say, power in this synagogue of the Cilicians in Jerusalem that speaks Greek. And here comes Stephen preaching in that synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah and the only way to salvation. That caused an uproar to the, to the extent that there was a rebellion of the Jewish men of these four synagogues. They went to the local leadership in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and they reported, they tattled on Stephen and said, we need to arrest this man. We need to silence this man. He is a blasphemer. He needs to go on trial. He needs to be put to death for blasphemy because that is what the Mosaic 
law required for blasphemy. And so that is exactly what happened. They dragged Stephen, whose only crime was preaching Jesus, to the Supreme Court of Jerusalem. They put him on trial. The 71 judges there, the high priest, it was Jewish local leadership. But but Saul was allowed to be there, who was from Cilicia, because he was a witness. If not even a member at that point of the Sanhedrin. And they put Stephen on trial and we saw his entire testimony in Acts chapter 7. At the end of his testimony we saw in chapter 7, where basically Stephen said, as he pointed, he indicted the Supreme Court, those 71 judges, and said, you have blood on your hands. You are guilty. You are like your fathers who persecuted the prophets and even killed all the Old Testament prophets. You are no different. You killed the greatest prophet of all, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have blood on your hands. And then they had it. They put their hands over their ears, and they rushed in a mad dash towards Stephen on the spot, accusing him of blasphemy. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to take off their long robes and it says they put their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they began to pummel Stephen to the death until he was crushed under the rocks. So they murdered him. And he became literally the first martyr of the Christian church. Stephen, and now that's where we pick up here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And the reason this is another reason Acts chapter 8 is a transition is there was persecution of the church for the first two to three weeks, uh, but it was isolated. Actually, for quite some time, the church had great respect from the community around them, it said, told us in Acts. Many people welcomed the Christians, but now there is a turn. There is persecution, it is overt. It is hostile. It is to the point of death. And now it is, for the first time, it is going to be widespread. And it's really spirit, spearheaded by one man. That Hellenized Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, the young man, young man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus, the disciple of Gamaliel, the Pharisee. And let's go ahead and look, Acts chapter 8. I'm just going to read the first nine verses because we may not get to the other two points uh, that will be for next time, three and four, because there's just so much here. And it is so significant for us. The persecuted church. The persecuted church, verses 1 through 9. So they just put Stephen to death. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So picture in your mind. They're putting their robes at the feet of Saul as they proceed to pummel him with stones to the point of... Why are they putting their robes at Saul's feet? Well, to put something at somebody's feet uh, was a way of showing uh, respect or recognizing that that person is an authority. They are in charge. Earlier in the same book of Acts... We saw that the people would come and give their money and they would lay it at the feet of the apostles. That was symbolic. Recognizing the apostles are the designated authority who will handle the money as it comes into the church. And they will make the decisions about how to distribute it. Uh, When Jesus taught in the Gospels, people came and sat at his feet. That was a phrase, an idiom in Hebrew among the Jews that you would sit at the feet of the rabbi, sitting at his feet, showing 
uh, loyalty, submission, and that person that you're at their feet, they are the authority in charge. And so that's clearly the picture here. As a matter of fact, it says they laid their robes at the feet of Saul and he heartily approved. So he wasn't involved. He didn't get his hands dirty. That's what cowards usually do. They motivate others to be suicide bombers. They will never do it themselves. And so there's Saul giving hearty approval. He exceeds his mentor, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was somewhat passive and reserved in his animosity and opposition to Christianity. He didn't warrant physical abuse. Saul does. Physical abuse to the point of death. So Saul is watching. He is in charge. He is the authority. We already saw Acts chapter 6. It says in verse 9 that Stephen was preaching in the synagogue of Cilicia. No doubt Saul's synagogue. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. And now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the same city there in Samaria. So let's go ahead and just look at maybe the first point, number one, uh, verses one through four. four, And in your notes there, I put intimidation. Intimidation. It's kind of the main theme. Saul attacks the church in Jerusalem. Jesus commanded his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, wait for the Holy Spirit, for Him to come upon you and He will give you the power and you will be My witnesses. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they already were, in Jerusalem, in Judea. Now the Gospel had already started to trickle out to outer Judea. So Jesus said, I want you to be My witnesses, to be My missionaries, not just in your hometown Jerusalem. It needs to go beyond. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, that was key. You need to go and take the gospel of Jesus to Samaria. Why was that significant? All 12 apostles were Jews. Well, at that time, there were 11 and then they added Matthias. So the 12 apostles were all Jews. They were purebred Jews. Their hub was around Jerusalem. Up north, about 40 miles, was Samaria. That was an area that was half-breed Jews. Mongrels, mutts. They were not pure Jews in their history from the time of Solomon in 931 B.C. to about 722 B.C. Pagans began to infiltrate the land there in Samaria. And Jews intermarried with pagans. And the byproduct were these half-breed Jewish people. That the Jerusalem Jews and the Galilean Jews thought they are dirty, they are unclean, they are not pure. So many of these Jews in Jerusalem, they were prejudiced towards their religion, towards their skin color, their ethnicity. So the Jews in Jerusalem, they hated Samaritans. As a matter of fact, in John 4, John the Apostle point blank says, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They are dirty. 
So if you had to go to Galilee, the shortest route was uh, go from Jerusalem, go straight through Samaria, and then you head to Galilee. The Jews, they wouldn't do that. They would boop, go around, take the long way. We are not stepping foot in the dirty land of the Samaritans. They are dirty. We want nothing to do with them. That was the attitude of the Jews towards the Samaritans. And here, by, by the way, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus was training, he'd been training his apostles, and then he picks 12 of them and commissions them as apostles. You will be my ambassadors. I'm going to send you. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how long you will go. Here's what you will say. Here's what you will take with you. Here's when, when you will return. And whatever you do, do not go into any of the cities of Samaria. Jesus put a ban on the apostles of going into Samaria and evangelizing. In Matthew chapter 10. Then a little later on in the ministry, Jesus is going around and he actually goes into Samaria. Whoa, violating his own ban. He actually evangelizes a lost woman, violating his own requirement. And I believe she got saved. This quasi-mutt of a Jew who was an adulteress five times over heard the simple gospel, got saved, born again, saved, and then she went out and told everybody about Jesus. And then the whole town came and tried to... But anyway, so Jesus went into Samaria himself. Now, later on in the ministry, maybe a year before Jesus departed, it says in Luke 9 that Jesus there was a time where Jesus went into Samaria, uh, preached, he was not welcomed. He was not received. They treated him horribly. And they basically tried to kick him out of town. Well, and the apostles were upset. And John and James, the two apostles, the brothers, they were so upset and infuriated the Samaritans that they didn't welcome Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, that they said to Jesus, Jesus, shall we call, call down fire from heaven and consume the city? That's what John the apostle thought of Samaritans. Burn them to a crisp. And then Jesus began to call them the sons of thunder. John and James. No, don't do that, John. It's not my purpose. But then Jesus put a ban on going into Samaria for a reason. He hadn't died and risen from the dead yet. There was no gospel to preach yet. Believe in the resurrected Christ. He hadn't died yet. His resurrection is basic to the gospel. So after he did his work, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. Then he commissioned his apostles and said, okay, now you can go into Samaria. So go into Jerusalem, go into Judea, go into Samaria to the despised Samaritans, the half-breeds, the dirty ones, and preach the good news that they might be saved. And go beyond Samaria, go to the uttermost parts of the world. That was the great commission. And the apostles, no doubt, would have said, aye, aye, captain, we will obey. Well, they did. Well, at least they stayed in Jerusalem and it was going there and so many people got saved and people started trickling out to Judea. Now, how do we get the gospel to Samaria? Fulfilling Acts 1.8. Well, in the mind of God, God does things differently than we do. Our plans are always different, it seems like. And God's plan was, yeah, I'll get to Samaria. I'm going to get there in a hurry and I'm going to get a lot of Christians to Samaria very quickly. Watch me. In less than four months, I'll get thousands of people, Christians in Samaria. I'm just going to bring on a wholesale uh, unmitigated persecution where the majority of Christians in Jerusalem are just chased out of town. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 8. That's why chapter 8 is so transitional. Uh, the apostle Paul, who was Saul at first, Saul the Christian hater, began persecuting the church in Jerusalem so much so that a, a, probably a majority of Christians in Jerusalem fled Jerusalem and they just left. And many ended up going to nearby Samaria, including Philip. 
Philip was not welcomed in Jerusalem anymore during the persecution. So Philip goes into Samaria. He starts preaching. People are getting saved. And that's what uh, Acts chapter 8 shows, that now the Great Commission is being fulfilled. Jerusalem, Judea, now Samaria. And then Philip is a key individual in Acts chapter 8 because he goes to Samaria. And then Philip, by God's providence, meets a man from Ethiopia. You know what that is? The uttermost parts of the world. We see a harbinger, a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of God's great commission just in Acts chapter 8 alone. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And Philip, one of the first deacons. By the way, Philip was not Philip the Apostle. There was Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the deacon. Philip the evangelist. It's a different man. So he's going to be a key individual and catalyst in Acts chapter 8 during this very important transitional period. And so Acts chapter 8, uh, there is just this flood of persecution uh, and it has been flooding in Christianity for 2,000 years. The flood is not going to stop in our lifetime. The flood is not going to stop until Jesus returns. That is the lot and the calling of Christians and Christianity. And it always has been. Persecution. That's why I put the persecuted church. That's what it's all about. It comes unglued from a human point of view. So let's go ahead and look at at least the first point. Uh, the intimidation and the onslaught initiated by Saul, the Christian killer, the Christian hater. Saul attacks the church in Jerusalem. Going into more detail, looking at verse 1. Saul, young Saul at this point, he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. That was totally illegitimate. It was not a legitimate trial. It was not procedural. They violated so many things. They didn't care. They weren't concerned about justice. There were onlookers, people watching in the street in Jerusalem, in the city. There was a whole bunch of Christians watching, but there were also Jews who weren't opposed to Christians but hadn't come to belief yet. They're, they're watching. What in the world's going on? There was a stoning today out and outside the city. What was that all about? And, wow, I didn't hear about that. And, oh, and, or I happened to see it, and it was ghastly. And, wow, was that legitimate? And did, did it warrant the death penalty? So there were Jews like that who were sincere in justice and procedure in the Mosaic Law who also witnessed this happen. And they play into the story here. So... But Saul, he didn't care. He was in hearty agreement with the death. And on that day, that very day where Stephen was killed, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. A great persecution. Up to this point, the persecution had been isolated, here and there, very controlled, very limited. Now it is great. The floodgates have opened. Great persecution. And now it is against the entire church. Anybody that professes Christ, anyone that is a Christian is subject to persecution. The great persecution. It began in the church in Jerusalem. As a result, we don't know how many, but it says they all. Could be a majority of Christians. Feared for their life. Because they just saw a faithful man Probably most of the Christians in Jerusalem knew Stephen, respected Stephen, voted for him to become a deacon. Were ministered by him, comforted by him, healed by him. Heard the gospel from him. And saw him murdered in cold blood. And now they knew they were candidates for this as well. And many of these Christians, they feared for their life. As a result, they were scattered. Throughout the area. In other words, they left Jerusalem, the hub of the Christian church. They scattered throughout the regions, all of Judea, and then even beyond to Samaria. Interesting, at the end of verse 1, it says, except for the apostles, everybody fled, but the apostles did not. 
Well, why not? Because they were not subject to this persecution. No, they were subject to persecution. They already had been subjected to physical persecution. This is tremendous courage. There was still a remnant of people who lived in Jerusalem that were not going to leave. And that was their home. I don't care if there's persecution. I don't care if they're going door to door, ripping people, Christians out of their home. I don't care if they're putting them on trial. I don't care if they're killing them. I'm not leaving my home. One of the reasons might be that, say, you had a, a Jewish family and the, the wife got saved. And the husband is not saved yet. And their, their marriage is still intact. They have children together. Husband doesn't want to leave. I got a job here. I'm not, I'm not running away from my home. That's one very likely scenario. So there's still a church that is thriving. There are still many to be saved in Jerusalem over the next 10 to 15 years that we even know about. And they needed a pastor. They needed elders. They needed leaders. They needed the apostles. Jesus commissioned the 12 apostles to lay the foundation of the church. And the foundation of the church started in Jerusalem. And these 12 apostles put their lives on the line. We are going to stay here. We're going to be faithful shepherds. We're going to feed our sheep. We're going to protect our people. We're going to trust the Lord. Actually, in the end, 11 out of the 12 apostles gave their life for Christ. They were killed. They were murdered. They were murdered. It was inevitable. But they stayed behind. Everybody else fled. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen. So we don't know exactly how Stephen was stoned to death. Could be that he was put in a pit and they threw huge stones on him until he was crushed or up against a wall and just pummeled him with rocks until he died because it says he fell. At one point he fell to his knees and prayed a prayer of forgiveness to Jesus and then he died finally. And so his body was there, was accessible. Uh, his murderers just were going to leave him there. But devout Jews, it could have been some believers, some not, just devout Jews made in the image of God and Possess some of the attributes of God, like goodness, a conscience, a sincere commitment to the Mosaic law, that a dead man deserves a burial. And so it says in verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen. And it says, and they made loud lamentation. They lamented. They, they wept. They wept over his death. Death is an enemy. We should weep in the face of death. It's not spiritual to stiffen your lip. And be stoic and, oh, death, whoop-de-doo. That's not the biblical portrayal. Death is sad. Death is the greatest enemy. Death warrants mourning, lamentation, crying. It's an example all throughout the Bible. This was totally appropriate. This was outward, public, loud lamentation over the unrighteous death of a very godly man named Stephen. They gave him what he deserved. A proper burial. While they're doing that, verse 3 says, but never, that wouldn't sidetrack Saul. He would not be stopped at this point. It says, Saul began ravaging the church. Saul began ravaging the church. This is key. The word ravaging, unique word. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. Ravaging in the Greek. That's it. So we have to go to other Greek sources to see how it's used. Septuagint and other places. It's a very specific word. Most contexts that I've seen it used, ravaging, it's in reference to wild animals. Wild animals just ripping another animal to shreds. A, a vicious wolf just ripping an innocent lamb to shreds, piece by piece. That is the word ravaging. It is physical. It is brutal. It's rabid. It's like an animal. It's beyond humane. It's not logical. It's senseless. 
It's bloody. That's the word. And that's what Saul turned into a vicious, wicked, violent, uncontrollable animal in terms of his animus and hatred for Christians and primarily the name of Jesus. There are still people like that today. They cannot stand the name of Jesus. They want to do what these guys did last. They want to put their hands over their ears when you start talking about Jesus. Just his name is an offense. Began ravaging, present tense, shredding the church. And present tense, continuing to, continuing to, persevering. He would not stop. He would not relent. There was no mercy. He was going to the greatest extent and lengths to persecute Christians. If they fled, he'd go after and chase them down till he caught them. That's what he said. He was not partial in his persecution and ravaging. He didn't care if you were a man, a woman, an elderly person, a child, a male, a female, if you profess the name of Christ, he would ravage you. Incarnate hatred was Saul. There, there was no greater crime against God than what Saul was doing. He wasn't just an angry man. He wasn't just a violent man. He wasn't just a murderer. He was murdering those who loved Jesus. That was his crime. What was his crime? What was his sin? He hated God and he hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. How do I know that? Well, we're going to see in Acts chapter 9. Jesus confronts Saul finally. Somebody's got to shut this guy down. He is out of control. And Jesus from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus. That was a sin. They believe in Jesus. So he's ravaging the church, entering house after, you know, this is what the Nazis did in Germany. Those of you, I don't know if you know your history. Literally. What were the Nazis doing, especially when it started in Germany? What was the crime of all these people? Well, first their crime was that they were born Jewish. That was their crime. Later on, as Hitler became more and more insane, he went after the Christians. He banished the Bible from all of Germany. And they were literally, his henchmen were going house to house, mercilessly, dragging people out, brutalizing them, abusing them, murdering them. That's what ISIS is doing right now the world over. I told you about this last week. There is not a week that goes by right now where we're not seeing footage, video footage, pictures of what ISIS is doing on a rampage across the world. In their opposition and hatred for the name of Jesus. And that's what Saul was doing. So he's ravaging the church. He's entering house to house. He's dragging off men and women. Can you imagine? Just visualize that. Going to the innocent home of this Jewish family, minding their own business. They tear down the walls. They go up and just grab the woman by the hair, drag her out, leave her children behind. Who cares if they're left to fend for themselves? Taking the husband, putting him into prison. That isn't all they did. Go to Acts 22 if you've got your Bible real quick. Here was also, Paul gives more detail. Later on, he's, Paul ends up, Saul ends up getting saved after being confronted by Jesus. And the first thing Jesus tells him uh, when he gets saved is, Saul, let me tell you, you are going to be uh, a servant and ambassador of mine. Oh, that sounds good. And let me tell you, you are going to be persecuted like never before. So all this that 
Stephen was subjected to and that the things that Saul subjected these Christians to is exactly what, what Paul gets in return. And Jesus told him up front. And so uh, Paul gets arrested a couple of times for being a Christian. And one of those times, and then he's given testimony in uh, Acts 22 after being arrested. And here's what he says, Acts 22, verse 3. He's given his testimony. He says, and now he's a Christian. Saul has become Paul. He's a Christian. And he's telling the Jewish leadership who wants to shut him down and kill him. He said, well, I'm a Jew, actually, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up here in this city in Jerusalem. And I was educated under Gamaliel, the great Pharisee, strictly according to the law of our fathers, the Mosaic law, being zealous for God. See, he is operating by zeal for God. Saul is killing Christians in the name of his God. You know, that is probably the most violent kind of hatred historically in the world is religious hatred. It is. Misguided religious hatred. Verse 3, chapter 22. I was zealous for God. He had a wrong view of God. Because Jesus was God and he rejected Christ. Just as you all are today. Verse 4, I persecuted this way. I persecuted Christianity and the Christians to the point of death. There it is. He didn't just throw them in prison. I persecuted. I was a Christian killer. Binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Verse 5. As as also the high priest and the, the council of the elders can testify. Because from them, the Jewish leadership, I also received letters to the brethren and started off to Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So when the Christians started fleeing, Paul would get permission to go get them, extradition, bring them back, bring them back to kill them. Later in chapter 22, verse 19, he's still giving a story. And then he became a Christian and he's talking to the Lord. And he says in verse 19, at the end of the verse, he says, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you, God. I used to beat Christians. Verse 20, and when the blood of your witness, God, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. 26, still on trial. Different audience, different day. Verse 4, so then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among our own nation in Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. Verse 9, so then I ought to my, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. When they were being put to death, I cast my vote. See, he doesn't want to get his hands dirty, but he orchestrates all of it, approves all of it, condones all of it, empowers all of it. Cast my vote, verse 11, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I, so he did get involved in physically abusing them. He'd drag them out of the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I'd force them to blaspheme so I could kill them. And being furiously enraged. See the emotion where this hatred comes from? And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So... That term there is loaded in chapter 8, verse 3. Paul ravaged the church. There was no greater 
perpetrator of persecution against the church than the Apostle Paul. He was the worst, the worst ever. The worst ever. There, I will never forget when I was a Bible teacher. I was a part-time pastor and a full-time Christian school teacher and a Bible teacher to seniors in high school at a Christian school in northern Utah around 1996. And I was had three or four Bible classes, and this class was to the seniors. They're going to go off to college, and it's a Christian school. Most of the kids, 20 kids in the class, went to a Christian church, grew up in Christian families, or at least quasi-Christian families. And we were actually going through the book of Revelation. It was a survey of the book of Revelation for this class in particular. Then I got to, uh, just early on in the book of Revelation, uh, the persecuted church, Smyrna, or whichever the persecuted church was. Um, and I was describing the persecution that they were undergoing and the persecution all throughout the book of Revelation. And I said, and this persecution even uh, goes on today against Christians. And then a, one of the seniors raised their hand. Actually, they almost didn't raise their hand. They just, they just blurted out, oh, that doesn't go on today. Christians aren't persecuted today. That's a thing of the past. I about fell over. Whoa, really? So you don't think Christians... So we had a good dialogue. So you don't think Christians are persecuted today? No, that used to happen in the Middle Evil days and back in the early... That doesn't happen today. I don't know any Christians getting persecuted. Well, it could be. Uh, maybe she didn't watch the news. Maybe... I mean, there was hardly anybody that lived in northern Utah anyway, so there's nobody around. Uh, but So there was total ignorance, right? And so then I began to explain to the class persecution and examples of it all around the world. And I introduced them to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, current news from around the world of countries that are being wholesale persecuted by people who hate Christ. And so that was a great learning experience. But uh, in her ignorance, she literally said, I, I, don't, I don't believe this happens today. And then fast forward about six or seven years, I was a pastor in, here in Northern California, teaching again, same thing, topic comes up, young college student, Christian, uh, says, oh, that's not happening today. The Christians aren't being persecuted. Exact same conversation. I was like, wow, really? So you don't think anybody's being persecuted today, Christian? No, I don't see it happening. And then I introduced them to the Voice of the Martyrs as well, among other websites, and they were fully informed. They became uh, an avid prayer warrior on behalf of the persecuted church as a result and became fully aware that, no, persecution is happening, and it's not just in countries around the world. It's actually happening everywhere there are faithful Christians, even here in America, and it's getting worse and worse in our country. God has been gracious to this country, America, protecting us from wholesale institutionalized persecution as Christians, but that pretty much has run ground zero. Because now it's the persecution and hatred against Christians in this country is becoming, for the first time, uh, engrafted in legislation, which makes it legal and permanent, and also institutionalized, meaning wholesale. Key leaders in our government. Once you do that, there's no turning back. And that's where I think we're headed. That's what's happening right before our eyes. So much has happened just in five years of assaults against the church here in our country. I can't even imagine 10 years from now what's going to look like in this country. Um, that's why you have to, if you are a, a real Christian, you have got to think about the realities of opposition to your faith and persecution. And realizing that you are, if you haven't been subjected to persecution, you live, you're in the minority. I am in the super minority of world history for 2,000 years. We're about to have a 
missions trip to one of the countries across the world, me and Pastor Bob and JR, and we aren't hearing really good news about that country and what the leadership thinks of Christianity. So we're praying. You can pray with us. The leaders of that country, they absolutely hate Christianity and Christians. So this is the calling of the Christian, and Paul was one of the worst, ravaging the church. Uh, So go back to verse 4 of chapter 8. Is persecution all bad? No, persecution actually is part of God's plan. That's the comforting thing. God is totally sovereign. Nothing happens in this life to you, to me, without God's oversight, God's permission, God's authorship. God is totally in control. He's going to use the worst widespread persecution the church has ever seen in their day and use it for good. Romans 8.28 was fulfilled this day and right after when there was this persecution in Jerusalem because God used it for good. He used it to begin to fulfill the mission of the church, extending the God. This turned into the missions program. You know, this is one of the greatest missions programs is, well, who's on our missions committee? Well, let's see, just be a part of persecution and you'll be a part of the missions committee. Get chased out of your town for your faith to another town and preach Jesus and you'll be on the missions committee. You'll be a, a missionary evangelist. And so this, this was what began the first widespread global church missions was persecution of the church. It was Tertullian. And by the way, here's Saul thinking, okay, if I could just chop off the head and kill influential Christians and smother the church and stop it here in Jerusalem and imprison them all, kill as many as I can, then I will shut this Christianity, this false religion, this cult, if you will, I'll shut it down. He literally believed that. And people have believed that throughout history and the ages. If they could just kill the Christian, they'll get rid of Christianity. It's what Stalin believed. If we can just wipe out Christianity here in the Soviet Union, it will never return again. Wrong. There was a, God rose up a man named Tertullian, a uh, Christian, in around... 200 A.D., who some of his writings have been left behind. He was an apologist and a preacher. And he is the one who said, and we have it in writing, and it's been preserved all these years, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You kill one Christian, you spill their blood, their blood will just give birth to ten more Christians or who knows. And that has been true. That's how God grows his church and spreads his church. You can't stamp out Christianity. It's like trying to stamp on a fire, thinking you're going to put the fire out, and your leg just is consumed with fire. And wherever you step, you spread the fire. That's what God does with persecution and the faith. So missions was launched as a result. God is totally in charge. You don't need to fear persecution, by the way. And also, you don't need to go out I mean, God has called us to persecution. I mean, that's Philippians 1.29. You have called not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. All who live godly in this life will suffer persecution. That's what Paul said in Timothy. Jesus said, if you're going to be faithful, you're going to be persecuted. Now, to be spiritual, you don't need to go out and look for persecution. That's not spiritual. That's actually stupid. Guess what? Just live godly where you are, live faithful where you are, and the persecution, it will come to you. It will come to your doorstep. You don't need to go looking for it. And you need to welcome it. Christians, we, we need to welcome persecution, not retaliate. 
Those are times to trust God at a new supernatural level. In those times, God has promised through the Holy Spirit He will give us a faith that we thought we could never have, a resilience we thought we never could have had, a courage in the face of danger and persecution we never realized we could attain. That's the promise of God. So you welcome persecution. You don't look for it. You live godly where you are. You trust yourself totally to God and His Holy Spirit. He will meet you in that need in the moment every single time, regardless of the results. Whether it's just simply verbal assaults, physical torment, or even death. For us, that's on rare occasions right now. There were, in the news, when I was reading this week, people being beheaded, murdered, burned, raped, dismembered by ISIS, Muslim members, just this week. And I read all the testimonies, and 100% of the time, of where it was reported, and it, they were Christians and true believers being murdered, they were saying things like, may God forgive you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 100% of the time. It wasn't cursing the perpetrator. It wasn't calling fire down on heaven on Allah. These true Christians, just as Jesus promised, in the midst of the persecution, God's grace was sufficient. And that is the encouragement that we can take from this passage. So let's go ahead and look at verse 4. So you've got this persecution going on. And here's the good news. Uh, and the amazing thing. Therefore, those who had been scattered, they split town. Grabbed their bag, handbag of stuff, and their little uh, mule and split town. And didn't even have a home, didn't know where they're going. One thing that never changed, these true believers, is they just kept preaching wherever they ended up. Uh, they go north 40 miles, they end up in Samaria. They end up in Samaria. And their hearts and attitudes have changed. They go into Samaria. These Christian Jews, these Jews who are told all their life and brainwashed, Samaritans are dirty. They are filthy. They are subhuman. Now they're Christians, new believers, new mindset. The love of God shed abroad in their heart. Jesus is their commander. Their mission is the great commission to preach the gospel, to see souls saved wherever they go. And they go into Samaria of all things. Unthinkable. To condemn them? No. To bring the good news. That's what they were doing. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And in closest proximity was Samaria. And there was a revival in Samaria among the Samaritans. That is the grace of God. Grace of God all around. The grace of God that the gospel would be brought wholesale into despised Samaria so that they might receive the good news and be saved. Grace towards these Jews who were once prejudicial, racist, hated people who were not like themselves, heard the gospel, became new creations, like Paul says in Corinthians 5. When you become a Christian, you are a new creature. All things, old things have passed away, and all things are new in Christ. We now have the mind of Christ, the love of Christ, the heart of Christ for people. We love sinners. We want them to be saved. It's amazing. This is awesome. God is sovereign. He is in charge. Now I want to leave this amazing thought with you for lunch. So go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Think of everything that I just said about Saul. Can you think of anybody more evil, heinous, wicked, undeserving, vicious, murderous, blasphemous in the history of humanity than Saul? Well, just so you know, the answer is no. He was worse than Hitler. He was worse than Stalin. 
He was worse than Nebuchadnezzar. He was worse than the Pharaoh of Egypt. He was worse than all of them combined. In light of his sin. So then you would think, wow, there is no way that guy can get saved. Well, first of all, he doesn't deserve the grace of God, right? He doesn't deserve to be saved. Well, that's true. He doesn't deserve to be saved, and no one does. But look what God did to this Christian killer. First uh, Timothy chapter one verse twelve. He is now he now goes by the name Paul. He is now a Christian. He is now an apostle. He's now at the peak of his ministry. He's now actually the end of his life. He's put in ten plus faithful years as a Christian missionary, the greatest Christian evangelist the church has ever known. He's now a Christian, and he's reminiscing at the end of his life, and he writes this down, preserves it for us. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because God considered me faithful, putting me into service as an apostle is what he's talking about, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. He was a Jew who was a blasphemer, which means he deserved the penalty of death, according to the Mosaic. He should have been dead. But God was gracious, bypassed the death penalty, saved him, changed him. And I was a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. That's when God does something good for you when you don't deserve it. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. There are many things he wasn't aware of. He hadn't been enlightened by the Spirit. It's not an excuse. It doesn't justify his behavior, ignorance. And the grace of our Lord... Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Can I get an amen? Amen. To save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul was not using hyperbole. He was not exaggerating to be emphatic. He was telling the truth. He was the worst sinner there ever was. The most undeserving. Verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. You know what Paul is saying? It doesn't matter what sin you have committed in your life. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ in His gospel. If you are not a Christian... I preach the gospel sometimes or just talk to people who are not saved. I say, well, I, God, he, he won't love me because of what I've done. I remember one time a, a man I befriended who actually served in World War II. He killed so many people. To this day, he still had nightmares that he had blood on his hands. He heard Christianity. His wife was a Christian. He believed what the Bible said. But for years, decades, he was put, God can't accept me. I am undeserving. I cannot be forgiven. Well, I told him about Paul. Paul was worse than you. You can be forgiven. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that's true. If there is anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, uh, and maybe the reason or your excuse is, well, I don't deserve it. Uh, be encouraged. God can save anyone. 
They repent of their sin and turn to Christ and believe in the gospel. And the promise as a result is eternal life forever. And with that, verse 17, we say with the Apostle Paul now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. And with that, let's pray and let's go to lunch. Father, we thank you for this day again. What a gracious and good God you are. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us. True history. Absolutely amazing. True history from 2,000 years ago that is still relevant for your people today because it is the living word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing our very heart, our conscience, our soul, And God, we just rejoice in the God that you are, that you are totally sovereign, totally in control. Nothing happens apart from your permission or will, whether it's good or bad. We also rejoice in the fact that you will work all things together for good for those of us who know you and love you. And with that, God, increase our faith. Help us to rest in you and continue to pray to you knowing that you are our Heavenly Father because of our relationship with you in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray for those maybe who don't know you, have not been born again or believe truly in the Gospel, that you would help them and use your Holy Spirit to that end and keep working on their heart, their mind, remove any barriers of confusion, ignorance, unbelief, satanic deception through the power of the Gospel that alone can save and we entrust them to you. We pray it all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.